Thank you, Frank. And I'm so glad that you can be uh, present here to field questions. I, I could not do that. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, what you were talking about, particularly with Genesis, is uh, the resonance between modern science, the book of nature, and specific revelation. And I know that um, someone like Hugh Ross would speak about trying to look at Genesis 1 as perhaps eons of, of change, or maybe a punctuated equilibrium of how where you meant you said six moments of light or something like that, six days of light. Well, I've heard that critiqued, and particularly someone by like Walton, who who wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis One and The Lost World of Genesis One and Two, um, two and Three and, and others. And he says that it wasn't at all a story about uh, of material origins, but of function, of because the ancient cosmologists wanted to know. What did it mean to be human? And so, um, and you mentioned that it was an apologetic to the local culture and that there, it, was in convert, it was conversant with these ancient cosmologies. And so how, what do you think? Uh, do you think that Ross and Walton can both be right? Or uh, um, because Walton would say, well, this is just an ancient cosmology to help us understand function and functionaries, but it's not, it's not, uh, neither here nor there, really talking about material origins or modern science, where Ross is like you, where they're wanting to find, he's wanting to find some resonance and maybe even trying to diagram it from the text. Can you respond to that, please? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think perhaps it reflects a difference between um, a number of us looking at the Genesis text and trying to understand it and trying to uh make it work in some way with what we know now if you well, i've read walton's book it's certainly an interesting approach to make it um functional rather than uh factual um that's certainly the direction that he has gone into um Okay, uh, interesting. Uh, I'm not an expert at that kind of area at all. Um, for me, as a science person, my interest, I guess, is uh, to look at it more from a factual material point of view. And so perhaps in that sense, I think I'm closer to Hugh Ross than to Walton, not because I, I just can't critique Walton. I've heard other people critique Walton. Uh, I know of a, a, uh, an ancient historian um, uh, who doesn't particularly like the way that Walton has done it. But then that's an unfair comment because I'm not an expert in that area and it would be unfair to go down there. Um, no, I've, I've, I've approached it from a factual point of view, what it might say to us from a resonance. Now, um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, in one sense, what we're doing is struggling with what we uh, regard as important, and that is the authority of the Bible, and at the same time, uh, how that might work uh, in uh, our context. Uh, it's something that I think is important, and. I guess what I've tried to do is to make a, uh, a foray from a more material point of view into that. 
So, yeah, that's perhaps all I can add to that comment. That's helpful. Does anyone have a question? Uh, so someone says, I have heard that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2 may have a span of possibly millions of years between those verses. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. That there yeah. was a pre-Adamic world which was destroyed, thus the without form and void. Uh, yes, I've heard that as well. It's a day uh, age theory. It, 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 between verses one and verse two, uh, some people have have made that particular point. Um, I, I can't add to it. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting possibility, uh, but it still leaves difficulties, in my view, in terms of um, the Adamic. Adamic uh, world that we actually live in, how that can still be relatively young. Um, yeah, I mean there are. It, it's it's helpful in the sense that it allows you to have a greater amount of time between verses one and verse two, which kind of helps with the age. But I'm not sure that it helps totally because you're still left then with the creation of Homo sapiens. Uh, some six thousand years ago, if we do any of, if we even uh, likely follow Bishop Usher's view, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it solves the uh, the total uh, of what we can measure. So uh, it's helpful, but I'm not sure that it gives you all the answers. Yes, hi. Um, first of all, thank you, Dr. Stutman. You gave me lots of things to think about. I don't come from a scientific background. I say that right away. But um, something I've always been kind of hung up on is the whole dating of um, the fossil, uh, the fossils that we have. And I don't know, is it carbon dating? And I have not, what I have heard is it that it's not that accurate, but maybe you can fill me in there um yeah um i think uh we need I've, I've i've met this kind of question often within christian circles i think we need to get away from the idea of carbon 14 dating that is that is not how it is done uh carbon 14 uh, carbon 14 is a version of carbon it has a half-life that is uh, if you had a lump of, if you had a lump of uh, carbon, uh, all carbon fourteen uh, nuclei, if you like atoms, carbon fourteen, uh, in five thousand years you'd have half of it. Uh, in another five thousand years you'd have a quarter, and so on. Uh, the half life is simply too short to be useful for dating, uh, radiometric dating. It's good if you're looking at pottery, if you're looking at uh, bones of animals, uh, it's useful in, 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 in a relatively recent 50,000 years, perhaps. That's where it is. But that's not actually how, how date, radiometric dating is done. Um, radiometric dating is done with uh, atomic um, uh, uh, isotopes, um, radioactive isotopes of other elements. Uh, like uranium, uh, like neodymium, uh, there are a number of these particular elements. They have half-lives which are extremely long. So for, for, for instance, 
uranium has a half-life well over a billion years. Now you say, well, how can you possibly measure that in terms of a billion years? I mean, you're not going to wait around with a lump of uranium, fill your, 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 your 235 or your 235, and wait for a billion years to get half of it. No, you don't need to. It's a rather simple experiment, which can be done at high school. Uh, what you can actually do, because radioactive decay is a logarithmic process, you can actually monitor something over a month, several months if you want to, for a long radio and you, a half-life, and you can plot the rate of decay as a function of time. You can draw a straight line through that because it's a logarithmic process, and the slope of the line tells you, tells you the half-life, in fact. And that's how we know that there are radioactive uh, particles, uh, atoms, uh, which can last, which, which have half-lives into the billions of years. Now, we also know, for instance, that there are radioactive particles which have, um, uh, have a, there can only be four radioactive series. And I'd need a whiteboard to explain exactly why. It has to do with, with uh, what's ultimately called alpha particle decay. But ne nevertheless, um, there are four radioactive series. And it turns out that one of these radioactive series does no longer exists in nature. And it has the shortest half-life of two and a half million years. So, so if it doesn't exist, you can say, well, it never, it never existed. But that's hardly likely because it's very easy to make in an atomic reactor. You know, it, it, it belongs to, the, to, to, to those radioactive series. But it doesn't exist anymore. And so that immediately points to the Earth being, for instance, well over two and a half million years old because that radioactive series, um, if the presupposition is correct, uh, ought to have existed at some stage as well with all the other uranium compounds as part of those whole, that whole series. And therefore, uh, the Earth appears much older when you look at it from a radioactive dating point of view. The, the universe is old because we can see the expansion of the universe and from that point of view we know that if we extrapolate backwards it's, again it's a, a plot that you can do a, a velocity versus distance now you can't get a measuring tape to the nearest star you've got no hope uh, but um, stars pulsate and the rate of pulsation is related to their intrinsic intensity it's like having a torch um, if you know how bright a torch is, the further I walk away from you, the dimmer it gets. But if you could measure the dimness and you know how bright it should have been, you can easily work out the distance between us. Now, it's give or take. It's not give or take a kilometre, believe me. It's give or take millions, <laughs> okay? This is not about the last inch of accuracy. The other thing we can do is compare uh, different radioactive compounds which exist in similar rock. So you might get a, a crystallization of the rock when it cools, if it, when it was molten. You can look at different, different uh, radioactive elements and then you can compare uh, the uh, behavior of those elements over time. And then you can say, well, is there consistency between the radioactive decay of those particular elements? That are in that in, in that rock. If there's not, you can't say anything. You know, science is not about you know making guesses all the time. But if there is a consistency, you can say, say, oh, this rock is consistently dated to say 38 
million years or you know whatever it be and when we're talking about accuracies of percents not 0.1 or 0.0 or you know one percent we're talking about you know one percent accuracy which uh, you know in a billion years one percent is one hundredth of a billion years which is still still um a hundred million so my, my, my point here is not super accuracy my point here is that the age seems long from radioactive decay and more than that it seems consistent in some in some uh, uh, ancient rocks uh, it's why we think that the dinosaurs lived for instance 60 million years ago now i know there are some people in the in the um uh, you know, in, in the creation science movement who want to argue that radioactive decay has continually changed. Um, that is hard to support, actually. I know that people say that. Uh, there's been experiments done at Stanford only five or six years ago which seem to indicate that radioactive decay uh, is not constant, that it varies as we go around the sun. But that has, that has, that's another physical phenomenon and there's no simple extrapolation from that to say, well, you know, right after UK is continually changed, and therefore we can fit this particular time uh, in uh, as such. Remember, even if you read the best creation science articles, people are saying, uh, well, it's not billions, it's millions. But you see, it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is powers of 10. 10,000 is 10 to the power of 4. A million is sent to the power of six. There's a hundred times difference between the two. So, you know, there are some really tensions there. And I'm not wanting to say that those, uh, you know, people aren't trying to, to uh, honestly trying to see how we might resolve that by going to try and make that work. Uh, I just think that it's a very difficult thing to do. And even the best work that I've seen is still a long way off getting it to 10,000 years. Uh, you know, or 6,000 years for humankind, a long way off. And that's the problem. Uh, the problem is that, yes, it might well be val uh, valuable to critique presuppositions and assumptions that science has. That may well be valuable. I'm not disputing that. But what's left is still not close enough. Uh, and so I think to myself, well, you know, I'm wondering whether this is really solves the problem or whether, you know, we're pressing in a direction which I think perhaps doesn't yield a lot of fruit. So that, that, that's how I would do that. So it's not about carbon fourteen dating. To, to summarise, it's not about carbon fourteen dating. It's about radioactive dating from a lot of other elements: uh, uh, neodymium, uh, selenium. Uh, I can't think of off the top. Of my, I've written an, an article on it actually, um, but you know, not having it right to hand. But, I can't quote all the, uh, the things, but um, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that you can read on the web on how radioactive dating is, is uh, how it works uh, and where it doesn't work and where it does work. You see, it, it's science. It's not, it's not, it hasn't got all the answers. It has answers, but not all of them. So, yeah, I'm hoping that's helpful. Darling wrote, Dr. John Wheeler stated that nuclear bomb that bombed Japan was not the first as ancient texts record humans running and having radioactive presence in their bones. Have you heard of this? No, but that we have radioactive uh, atoms as part of us is real. 
And in fact, that's the reason why we can do carbon-14 dating. Because what happens is that there's a natural amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere. It's regulated by the sea, basically, but there's a natural amount of carbon-14 in, in the atmosphere, which means that animals and uh, living things breathe and exchange in an equilibrium kind of way a small amount of carbon-14 uh, which then embeds in bones and so on. Now, when, a, when an animal dies, what happens is that they stop breathing. Uh, we all know that to be true. But the reality, the reality is then they also stop exchanging carbon-14, which means things are, that's one way of dating um, uh, the, uh, uh, yeah, one way of doing using carbon-14. But that's not being used to measure the age of the Earth. That's being used to measure more local things. Right. There's uh, someone who said, this is new to me, an opening of a door, as you stated. I'm interested in learning more from this perspective. What are some lectures, books you can recommend to a non-academic person to pursue? Maybe if you could give us a list. If you could email me a list and I can send them out. Um, a lot of these are my own ideas. These are not actually <laughs> been written down, so I should write. That's the point. Uh, no, um, I mean, there are lots of people who've written about Genesis and interpretations of Genesis. Um, uh, many of these ideas are my own, my own ideas, putting forward I, ways that I, as a science person, might actually uh, look towards resolution. Um, so. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry that that doesn't exist and that, you know, I, I haven't tried this out on the, uh, on the world, if you like. So. Well, we do have some books here at Labrie of some variety mm -hmm. of perspectives sure. that have not consolidated it as well as you have. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that uh, that might be a good starting place and maybe any articles. And also, uh, I hope to um, uh, perhaps we can have you again. Yeah, sure. So I was just going to ask a question. As a physicist, I was wondering what your thoughts are on sort of like the fundamental nature of randomness. Oh, yes. That's a, I Sorry. I, I, I did a great lecture on randomness. In fact, it's a very good question. Randomness is real from our perspective. And it might be very surprising to you, but randomness is actually used in the scripture. There are many examples, in fact, where... God uses that. You choose uh, two uh, um, uh, goats, one you sacrifice and the other one you don't, and you choose them by lot. The division of land that in, amongst the Hebrews was done by lot. The 12th apostle was re-elected uh, by lot. Uh, there are many examples, in fact, uh, and I need, you know, I, I have obviously haven't got my, my text in front of me, but there are many examples where chance is real. So the kind of world that we live in, that we see, I'm not suggesting that there's, uh, there's no sovereignty behind God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying from our point of view, in our particular dimension, things, uh, there's many random processes. The pollen coming from flowers, the, uh, the semen, uh, you know, male, uh, uh, the, the sperm, right? They are uh, full. There are millions of them. Uh, there are lots of examples uh, where 
that kind of variation is part and parcel uh, of the reality that we live in. And it doesn't take away from God's sovereignty. It just simply says that from our space time, that is a, a, a reality. So randomness is not something that is foreign to scripture either. Uh, I, I think that surprises a lot of people that God also is willing to work within the context of our own understanding uh, things that we might see to be chance processes. Uh, that requires a lot more unpacking than I've just done. But I, I've got a whole lecture on this um, because I think it's a lot more important than we than yeah. we would allow. When we talk about sovereignty of God, we immediately uh, kind of have a almost uh, you know puppet-like string kind of approach. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a good way of thinking about sovereignty at all. Well, I was going to suggest, you know, it's, it's sort of an underlying thing for freedom of choice and, you know, choice whether or not to be in a relation, for example. You know, so I think there's a lot of deep meaning there. And it's, it's mm -hmm. something that I find it's not treated, uh, discussed. I'm actually a statistician. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot about randomness yeah. and, yeah. Yeah. and the, the amazing things with randomness and the fact that sure. there's shapes to randomness sure. and predictable long-term outcomes. Sure. It's, it's really sure. fascinating. It is, and there's been a lot of work done on chaos theory uh, some years ago now. Uh, it's not as popular now, I think, but uh, you know the idea that that uh, one can describe uh, what's called pseudo-randomness as a consequence uh, of a, a mechanistic algorithm, which nevertheless leads to uh, yeah, an interesting spectrum. I mean, you must know the computers do exactly Yeah, that. they're pseudo-random. Um, that's exactly, exactly what they do. They create pseudo-random numbers, um, uh, which have a white noise spectrum. Uh, because, you know, if you plot them over time, then over the white noise spectrum, which is uh, good enough, if you like, to simulate uh, uh, randomness. But, um, yeah, I, I do think that there are processes in our reality which have that statistical variation. They just really do. And I think that, um, I, I think that needs to be there in our discussion uh, from our point of view of the sovereignty of God. And I think that needs to be, there needs to be a lot more time talked about those kind of things. Hi, Dr. Stutman. Um, yeah, I, um, I had, a, I had a question, then I was distracted by the randomness uh, question <laughs> to, to a different question. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, to, to stick with my first, I mean, the second question is interesting too, but the first one that came to mind, you were talking about uh, carbon-14 dating and mm. sort of looking at stars and galaxies moving away from us and uh, uh, that you can uh, plot the course of decay. Um, and I guess I'm curious. Um, there's a there's a there's a quote by Mark Twain. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard this quote before, uh, but it's uh, I'd like to read it. I think it makes a good point. Um, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, so Mark Twain, uh, he says, in the space of 176 years, the Lower Mississippi has shortened itself 242 miles. That is an average of a trifle over a mile and a third per year. Therefore, any calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old Olytic Silurian period, just a million years ago, next November, the lower Mississippi was upwards of 1,300,000 miles long 
and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing pole. And by the same token, any person can see that 742 years from now, the lower Mississippi will be only a mile and three quarters long, and Cairo, Illinois, and New Orleans will have joined their streets together and be plodding comfortably along under a single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. <laughs> there, there is something fascinating about science. One gets such wholesale returns of conjecture out of such a trifling investment of fact. Um, so I feel like he's he's kind of making this this jab at, uh, I guess, extrapolating. You know, sort of saying, well, if things are, you know. On one hand, I think it makes sense to assume that there are consistent forces in the world, right? I mean, I think we experience that, um, but uh, there seems like there's a limitation to that. So when you're when you're dating something, some radioactive isotope, uh, I mean, who's to say, you know, after five thousand years, there isn't a, a radical change in its in its development, um, or or you know, the stars or the galaxies that we see moving away from us. Uh, you know, maybe there was some other event that uh, that happened that would alter that, or um, that we're we're unaware of. Yeah, well, that's not how scientists think, however. Um, <laughs> um, you know, the Mark Twain conjecture. He assumes a uniformity. Uh, he assumes that measurement uh, hasn't changed, the quality of measurement hasn't changed, and therefore he has made a, um, a piece out of that in which, uh, you know, borders on ridicule. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that that is actually what science people do. I think that um, measurement is continually improving. Um, people are uh, in the scientific uh, journals, people are not actually um, you know, all patting each other on the back. Uh, scientific journals are, are uh, places where people can test various ideas, and um, uh, it's not about um, it, 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 it. People believe that there's, uni there's uniformity within the world, that there is a temporal and spatial uniformity. And why do we believe that? It's a very reasonable assumption. If I look at the spectrum, uh, which has the, the light coming from stars, light coming from stars are created by various atoms, uh, various transition levels between electrons around an atom. That creates a particular spectrum of light. Now, it turns out that when I look at that, it is exactly the same spectrum as here on Earth. It's just shifted uh, towards the red, which means it's moving away from us, much like a siren kind of uh, idea. Now, it's very important to see that the fact that the universe has that spectrum, no matter where we look, we can say the universe is uniform. There's a uniformity. I might never be able to get to the stars. Um, the reality is that there's a certain uniformity there. It's true that we can't, uh, we don't live long enough to see the evolution of stars and things like that. But there are various places in the universe where there is, uh, one can take snapshots of pictures, if you like, and those pictures show us different stages of evolution that are there. And therefore, we also think there's a temporal uniformity happening 
in the universes that we live in, that's it there. Uh, the consistency of the laws is important, in fact. Um, uh, the, that is, if you like, a fundamental presupposition. It's a metaphysical presupposition, to be sure, but it is still a presupposition which is there uh, to do science, to do any kind of science at all, one must assume that there's a rational universe. And as far as we know, as we do measurement, there's rationality there. There's certainly errors, there's certainly errors, there's certainly improvements. So that the Mississippi is changing its length uh, uh, is simply a, a conjecture uh, based on assumptions which, um, you know, there are certain presuppositions in that kind of argument which are not scientific. Right. That's not how science works. Right, okay. so, but uh, it, it sounded like you were saying, um, and maybe this is part of what Mark Twain is pointing at, is that there are philosophical assumptions to science and, uh, you know, the uniformity of, of the laws of uh, uh, reality sure. is a is a perhaps a metaphysical assumption sure an important one and how do we know that we know we get into the whole area of epistemology now in this area the reason that we can ultimately believe it you know this metaphysical assumption is because it's consistent with god being the creator of the universe i mean in and of itself it remains an assumption you know the the uh, assumption is a real one. Um, science assumes a certain uniformity uh, of uh, a temporal and spatial uniformity. It assumes that. Uh, it assumes it because it, 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 there are, um, it's hard to find all, it's hard to find things that don't fit that particular, those assumptions. The ultimate guarantee of that metaphysical speculation the ultimate guarantee is that there is a God who has created a universe uh, which is ordered uh, and which has laws and uh, which um, uh, therefore has processes which follow from those particular laws. So uh, you're right, the metaphysical uh, foundation, if you like, upon which that stands would have no value, would, you know, would be very much weaker perhaps then other than pragmatically that's what we find as we do our science um, uh, but the ultimate foundation of that rests in the fact that there is a god who has created that universe with those particular laws and properties and so on uh, that would be the epistemological basis upon which that metaphysics has any meaning so yes i i, I you know there, there's a validity in the criticism but as a Christian, I would want to say, well, because God has created the universe, that also confirms the, the value of that metaphysics, which we see borne out in the pragmatics of actually doing experimental work. Would yeah. I be able to add a small point? Yes, sure. I'm, I've actually done a lot of experimental science mm -hmm. um, and more in biology, which is very messy. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and physicists, physicists have a much more structured world. So for sure. the Mississippi example, um, yeah. We'd actually make predictions and go out and look for it. Mm. And when the predictions would fail, for example, that, you know, those two continents would have been connected in that particular manner, then you say, okay, well, you know, what, what failed? Why did this fail? So you know, we might get back to the fact that, you know, the rate of erosion of the Mississippi is changing over time. 
and that extrapolation wouldn't have worked. So yes, extrapolations are very dangerous, I agree, um, mm. especially for biological systems. The problem with the physics is that um, you can make these predictions and the predictions work out amazingly well. Yeah. Um, yeah. They are so yeah. high precision. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's mind numbing if you've been in yeah. the other areas of science okay. at the, the degree at which the precision you see in, in physics. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're measuring, it's not quite apples to apples just because mm. sort of physical, geological, biological mm. systems are very hard to measure, very hard to quantify. They have, they're, they're not in the same type of, uh, there isn't that same type of simplicity typically. Yeah. But I, I, think, I, I think a very important point has just been made, um, which I haven't talked about, but the process of science has a feedback mechanism. Uh, and that is that predictions lead to other predictions and there's this almost circular approach. Uh, because of the feedback, uh, it means that certain, there's a certain conviction built up about certain things being true on the basis of that prediction uh, and those predictions leading to further experimental work. And that's, an ex that's one of the reasons why science has a kind of certainty uh, which... Um, uh, was looked upon by a lot of early philosophers, if you like. It was looked upon as uh, as something that they wished, for instance, uh, they could also do within philosophy, for argument's sake. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of, I think, uh, Thomas Hobbes is one of those, an example of that, but I, I have to go and check my facts. But I, I believe that some of the philosophers would have liked the same kind of, uh, certainty that science brought out of its experiment. But it's also important to understand that measurement is not the only epistemology. And that's the problem, I think, with a lot of modern, uh, modern uh, people when they discuss uh, uh, how do I know that I know. I know that I know not simply from things that I measure. I also know that I know from the things I experience. Uh, I know that I know that I like chocolate. Uh, I know that I know that my mother loved me. Uh, I know that I know uh, from a whole lot of other reasons. So my epistemology is much broader than simply what I can measure. Uh, and that's uh, an important addition that we need to make when people start to argue that the only way forward is science. Uh, uh, yeah, sure, measurement is important, um, but you know, one I, I have a whole discussion, a whole lecture on the area of certainty, but but certainly um, uh, epistemology is much bigger than than the uh, the security of measurement. But the security of measurement is real because the universe is rational. And the universe is rational metaphysically because, as I said, it's because there is a god. And some people would argue that God was a good mathematician, and uh, I have some I have some sympathy with that. I'm interested in mathematics myself. Thanks, Dr. Steetman, for such a thought-provoking um, talk. Um, I guess my question is more, you, you talked about the tension between, you know, science and, you know, the, the biblical perspective and so on um, that, that sometimes has arisen, and you've addressed a number of those points, but I guess what I'm curious about is from your own perspective and experience, um, was there sort of an, an aha moment where it sort of clicked for you because there's so many, there's so much complexity and so many compelling reasons that you've just, um, you know, highlighted in the last few minutes. But I'm just curious if there was sort of one thing that really 
sort of set you down sort of your path of belief in, in a God versus scientists who have gone in, in the opposite direction? Well, I, I guess um, uh, I didn't go out, grow up in a Christian home. I, I didn't grow, grow up in a Christian home. Um, somehow or other, in, in Australia, uh, we still have scripture at school. We allow scripture at school. And so I used to go to my scripture classes and um, the, um, the nun, because I was acting in the Catholic tradition, uh, the nun would talk about God and I was very interested. And so I actually started going to church of my own accord, though my family didn't uh, go to church. For some strange reason, I have always thought that the spiritual reality was important. However, my understanding was poor. So whilst I certainly moved within Catholic circles, my first communion, uh, and certainly uh, later on confirmation, and I even had thought about the possibility of going into a priesthood, in fact. However, it wasn't until I went to university and somebody said to me, have you ever read the Bible? And I thought, gee, that's a good idea. And it's really through reading the scripture that I began to understand the God who I worshipped and believed in and his son Jesus. That's how I came. And was there an aha moment? I'm not sure about that. It, it took time. Uh, it took a period of years uh, for me to grow that. And it's an area that over years and years I struggled with. I guess my real, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's... Uh, it, it was gradual. It wasn't something that you can say how. Uh, uh, I mean, of course, there were the Billy Graham Crusades, and yes, of course, I went down with one Billy Graham Crusade, but I wouldn't have thought that that was really, that was more a moment that underscored what I already uh, had started to believe, if you like. I'm always saying to people, you know, read the source, read the source document, uh, read the scripture. Um, understand who this uh, Jesus is, uh, understand how it all fits together. The more you understand, the more remarkable the whole thing is. And that's, I guess that's not an aha moment so much as something that has come to me over time. So I, I became a Christian actually through reading the Bible. You know, I have that in common with my uh, mentor, Francis Schaeffer, uh, the same kind of, uh, and, and indeed, you know, what I liked about Francis was that he was so connected with uh, culture and with the flow of culture. And I've always been like that as well. Uh, you know, for, for me, I love the, um, yeah, I, I, I just love how uh, the Christian worldview impacts and, and protects uh, the flow of history, uh, even above history in which we live today. So I'm sorry, it was not an aha moment. It was a more a, a gradual process by reading the scripture. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dr. Stutman, for your talk. Um, the conversation here just went to epistemology, and there was sort of a question of, um, you know, you, you made a comment which was, uh, you know, not all knowledge is um, measurement or empirical. And so mm. there's something that I, I've been thinking about. I, I was just uh, listening to uh, John Verbeke, the philosopher, talking about mm -hmm. his, his way of doing epistemology. And I think this would just be helpful for everyone to hear because it's been helpful in categorizing it for me 
which is the four P's. Knowledge is propositional, participatory, uh, perspectival, and I can't remember the fourth one. Um, oh, but but the, uh, uh, procedural, procedural, like procedural. I will do this, right. then I will do this. You know, I, I know how to build a house. Yeah, procedural. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And, and so science is really good at the uh, uh, propositional. Mm -hmm. that's 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 that space mm -hmm. um i'm i'm sort of the repeat unbeliever to the libri uh libri circles and so um but i i admit i admit fully that um one of my one of my transitions into not being a believer was things like um what you brought up which was the the fusion point on the number two chromosome where they mm -hmm. could see sort of find the telomeres in the in the center mm -hmm. of it yeah, um, that was that was one thing, um, mm -hmm. because I I came from a fairly um, uh, sort of a John Usher Kent Kent Hovind sort of mm -hmm. uh, tradition of reading Genesis. Yeah, and uh, the, the fusion point of the telomeres. Um, there were others, but that's the one. That's the one you mentioned that that I caught. Um, mm -hmm. and, and noticing that the that the sort of straight deduction from from a, a reading and then applying mm. that to mm. that sort of um, mm. inductive deductive circle you were talking about yeah scripture just doesn't seem to mm -hmm. um, jive but I don't have a I don't have any sort of methodology for the perspectival participatory or um, procedural like I don't have as a non-believer I don't have those methodologies uh, I don't know I don't really have a question but I just thought I, those were the thoughts that were going through my mm -hmm. mind while you were talking, while the questions mm -hmm. were being asked, or if you want to comment on it or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I can just say a little bit about a little bit about certainty, because I think that certainty applies to a lot of those different P's that you mentioned. In fact, it's different. Uh, obviously, um, um, it's different in the different categories, but the one thing I think about certainty, the overarching thing is uh, what we might say is beyond reasonable doubt. So I measure something in science, and as a physicist, I might measure something, and I would quote tolerances, and that is the uncertainty in a particular measurement. And those uncertainties determine beyond reasonable doubt. If I want to argue something in a paper, uh, then uh, I'm responsible to also um, argue in a way with the tolerances to say certain things are beyond reasonable doubt. Okay? Now, that applies to all areas of life, actually, when you think about it. In a broader way, it's not the same as, as, as measuring a measuring uh, something atomic for argument's sake. But you know, uh, walking to your car and hoping that it will start is beyond reasonable doubt. It's beyond reasonable doubt if the car is reasonable, uh, but you know, if you've got an old bomb, then it's unlikely you know, that it may start for argument's sake. Um, uh, to say uh, someone loves you is also a process uh, of interaction. So, um, uh, you know, if, if that, uh, if you love somebody, then the measure of that is what you do for them, uh, what they feel you do for them, what reciprocation you get, that gives you a certain sense of beyond reasonable doubt. May not be, may, may not be beyond reasonable doubt, you see. 
in that case, you wouldn't further that relationship. Um, you know, that your mum loves you may or may not be beyond reasonable doubt, depending on the kind of interaction that you have. Uh, in a court of law, uh, we are charged in, in the Australian system, uh, the jury system is charged uh, to see whether the prosecution has proved the case beyond reasonable doubt, in fact. And I've been the foreman of a jury. I know the kind of process that goes through, that you go through. But my point is that ultimately certainty is related to that. And so here am I, a Christian. For me, it's beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, yes, the camera wasn't rolling. That is certainly true. The camera wasn't rolling. But on the other hand, the uh, circumstantial textual evidence for me says that I am, it's beyond reasonable doubt. So I'm applying the same kind of paradigm here that you might apply to any of your four Ps, that certain things are beyond reasonable doubt. But that's not true for everybody. Not everybody thinks the same way. There are many people who say, well, it might be beyond reasonable doubt for you, but not for me. Uh, let me keep asking questions. And I think that is part of it. You know, it is part of, uh, it is actually part of, um, uh, what shall I say, the growth, the development, you know, of a person and the questions that we might have assumed were answered beyond reasonable doubt may in fact come back to us and we need to reconsider whether it is beyond reasonable doubt. But, you know, as, as, a, as a Christian and as someone who's a scientist, it's not that I don't, uh, that I've simply uh, hung my brain on my brain out of my head and hung it up somewhere on the hook that's behind you, and then come and uh, walk into church and and uh, you know worship God and then put my brain back into my head. And that's not how I live my Christianity. My Christianity is always being measured and thought about. And well, not everybody's like that. That's who I am. I'm a very cerebral person, so I tend always be thinking about well, how does that work uh, you know how does that true how i can think of this situation i can think of that situation but it's this struggle for honest answers to honest questions that 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 keeps me within the christian uh, church it's not because you know for me this certainty of jesus's resurrection keeps me there uh, even though there are times when things are not going as swimmingly as I would like them to go. You see, from a psychological point of view, we're complex beings psychologically. And, and so my, my faith is based on a certain rational understanding as well, which I have found very helpful. That's not to say that I, I don't have a sense of emotion with God, but I, I do feel there's a certain standard. And I guess what I want to say really is keep looking, keep struggling with that, Keep looking at what is certain. Where is the beyond reasonable doubt? I, I guess that's the kind of direction that I would, uh, that's the direction that I have ha have walked for many years. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted to say, well, yeah, I, I really, I appreciate, I appreciate that answer. And, and um, I like, I like that answer. Mm. I, I, I find it interesting. Um, the, it, you, you, it gets converted back into the propositional. So that was, that addressed one half of what I was saying, right? We, okay, let's get back to the propositional. And the other half of what I was saying was, 
you know, you're, you're doing better than me because you've got, you've got a methodology for the participatory. You have a methodology that isn't, you know, you're narrowing the boundary parameters and saying, Hey, look, look, there's, there's a, um, uh, we, we can look at the case from this angle and this angle and this mm-hmm. angle. And I'm saying, well, no, I'm t- one of the, one of the other three P's don't deal with the case of the matter or the, or what are the facts? It's how do I live? And that's a different set of questions. So the other P's address. So I, yeah, I, I, I like, I, um, that's all. I, I'm just flashing around with that, but thank yeah, you very no, much. I, no, I, I think the area, if I may uh, add something to your thinking at this point, um, I do think wisdom is involved. I do think uh, uh, what is beyond reasonable doubt involves a certain growing wisdom as well. Um, so, um, and experience. Uh, I think they all play their role uh, and um, they all have a role in a growing knowledge of what is um, an ep- epistemological basis. So, in other words, I like chocolate. Well, I like chocolate, not because I can measure it, other than that I can taste it, and I just happen to like it. And I keep, I keep this chocolate around the house, and I'm dangerous because I find it. Um, so, you know, all, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is that there is a certain reality in that which has a measurement aspect to it, in the sense that I like something, and if I like something, that is a measuring kind of process as well. And so, uh, you know, that it's beyond reasonable doubt is because um, I keep going back to it. So all I'm trying to get at is that even in the other areas, the other P's, which are not propositional, there are certain wisdom, certain, uh, there are certain things that you can put into a broad category now of beyond reasonable doubt in terms of wisdom, in terms of experience, in terms of various things that make up our lives, I think. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe too rational. <laughs> uh, I don't have COVID, don't worry. <laughs> but you're too far away anyway. <laughs> the, the reality is, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, um, yeah, beyond reasonable doubt isn't a bad paradigm to sort of kind of think. And that requires different measuring tools in different areas, I totally agree. I totally agree. You know, how do I live life well? Well, what what um, what wisdom is there in terms of uh, living life well, of being uh, having a sense of peace and uh, uh, a sense of uh, uh, knowing that I'm within a framework in which uh, God cares for me? That um, sounds awfully self-centered, but I'm not trying for that. I'm just simply making the point that. That is part of what I'm promised uh, as I put my hands into the hands of Jesus. And so, yeah, uh, that kind of wisdom builds beyond reasonable doubt as well. So keep, keep, keep looking. It's important. Thanks, Dr. Stutman. It's Brett Kane here from, uh, I'm in, in Labrie. I just thought oh. I'd just mention another dimension which would be supportive of your position but which you hadn't mentioned which is that the whole nature of the biblical material and uh, I believe people have really imposed a very narrow perspective on the biblical material as if it were a scientific treatise and so on and it's much much broader Uh, for example in the first chapter you've got uh, the first three days of uh, various areas 
being created and then the, the, the last three days yeah. being filled. And yeah. of course, yeah. the sun isn't created until the fourth day. Sure. So by its very nature, it is obviously not meant to be taken as, quote, literal. It doesn't mean that it doesn't portray the truth, but that yeah. it's doing it in a different way. And, and yeah. the same thing goes for chapters two and three. So, you know, yeah. people ask, um, you know, wh where was Cain's wife? Well, mm. I mean, you know, as if we're the only people in history to ever think of that. Well, of course, people thought of that. And Origen himself, the, 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 the theologian in, in the third century, he raised the issue about, well, the sun wasn't created until the, until the fourth day. So obviously mm. not meant mm. to be taken in that uh, literal way. But it doesn't oh. mean that it's not true, but it's yeah. telling it or describing it in a poetic way, a metaphorical way. And also, I, I, mm. I won't go into it, but I, I really feel that um, uh, Genesis 2 and 3 have elements uh, of uh, what dreams are like, that you actually perceive reality in a symbolic way. Mm. Um, but, but that would mm. give support that people are being too narrow. And I think especially during the, uh, after following mm. the Enlightenment, people have imposed upon scripture a too narrow uh, mm. way of, mm. of interpreting it, which of course has led to all these assumptions and, and, and mm. conflicts which aren't mm. there at all. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, there, and that's why I've used the word resonance um, uh, in an attempt to, from my perspective, from a science perspective, I guess, um, I use the word resonance for that reason. I'm not trying to say, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a picture. Sometimes I, I use the example, if you, if you go to an art museum and you stand close to an impressionist painting, you could ask all sorts of strange questions about the painting. You know, how come that looks like this? How come that looks like that? But the idea is that you've got to stand back a little bit from the impressionist painting to actually get it. Okay, so I don't see, when I talk about resonance, I don't talk about, what I also mean is I, I don't have a photograph. I don't have a high resolution photograph. I have a picture which also brings out an emotional reality as well. It isn't just emotive reality. So most children get it, that if you disobey your parents, you get into trouble. Uh, most, most people get that, you see. Um, and so there are layers, uh, there's a profundity in the text. Uh, which, which uh, you're alluding to and which I totally agree with. Uh, there's a profundity there and it is uh, beyond uh, simply wanting to put it into one, uh, 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 sort of into one box, if you like. But if I do put it into a box, all I'm saying is that even in this resonance, there are certain aspects of it which are not foreign to even that box of science, if you like. But you're right, you make Thank a very you. good point. Yeah. I like your an analogy of the Impressionist paintings. I'll turn you over to Liz. Um, so I've heard a lot of people, including some of my Christian friends, talking about this idea that the Bible reflects evolution over, evolution over time um, mm -hmm. of, of people's views of God. Like as people evolved, they gained this idea of God as loving and merciful Whereas in the Old Testament, he was negative and vengeful. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've just heard people talking about that quite a lot. So I'm curious what, what you would say to people who have that um, theory that, that you can see human evolution. Um, uh, yeah, through, through, yeah, mirrored through um, the scriptures. Oh. 
Sure, yeah, it's a good question. Very good question. Um, there is a difference between the relationship in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Agreement, that's what it means, to the New Agreement, right, which is the New Testament. There is a change in relationship between us uh, uh, from uh, following the commandments, uh, from uh, having a certain obedience measured by doing certain things, that's certainly there. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, we've been moved to the state of being sons and daughters. And so we're, uh, we've become, because of the Spirit, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, it means that there is a, there is a change in relationship between us and God in a sense. Okay? So having, that covers that kind of uh, reality. Now, as to the difference between God in the Old Testament and New Testament, I, I, I don't see that at all. I know that people say that, uh, but I don't see it at all. I see a God in the Old Testament who loves his people. His people are apostate. You know, he makes an agreement with them. And, and, and he says, I'll be your God and you can be my people, you know, and I'll look after you, but won't betide you if, if you walk away with, uh, from me and follow after other gods. And so you see, a lot of the Old Testament is this um, uh, desire for God to love his people and they reject him as a harlot uh, and then they're judged. But the interesting thing is, uh, there's always a remnant left. There's always a remnant uh, and he always brings them back. There's always reconciliation. There's uh, a reconstitution of, of that. Now, this is very interesting because in Isaiah's commission, which is in chapter 6 of Isaiah, for instance, uh, in Isaiah's commission, uh, he, he is uh, quoted, uh, God quotes to him something which is important, uh, which is, you know, uh, uh, be seeing but not seeing. I've got my Bible in my hand, otherwise I, 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 I can read it to you. You know, uh, be seeing but never seeing, be hearing but never hearing, you know. And it says at the bottom, and this is quoted in the New Testament as well, lest they turn and I would forgive them. You see, even in the Old Testament, if you look at it, you see a God whose heart is for his people. I mean, genuinely for his people. Yes, you know, don't cross him. Don't, don't go after other gods, particularly if you say you, you're not going to do that, you're going to follow him. And, and remember that Israel was also uh, meant to be the model for uh, the surrounding nations. Uh, that's also what it uh, there, but but deep down, there's this deep compassion that God has. God is compassionate. They deserve judgment, but you know, if they if they turn, I will forgive them. And I, and I think that's deeply there in the Old Testament. If you read it, I I, I can quote many passages. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff on this. Um, I can quote many passages which show really the compassion of, the, uh, of this God. Now, it's a different relationship to be sure, but the compassion is still there. Uh, and so I, I'm not at all, you know, when Richard Dawkins starts in his, in his book, um, uh, The God Delusion in Chapter 2, he, he makes a whole lot of quotes about what he thinks God is. You know, he has this, this whole range of the worst um, uh, adjectives he can think of to describe this God of the Old Testament. And I'm looking at that and I think I said, no, you know, I haven't read it. You know, if you really read it with an open, uh, with an open mind, you begin to realize, yeah, God can't be trifled with. That's still true. 
you know, God can't be trifled with. But on the other hand, there's a compassion in him that that continuously is there. I'm, I'm not one of these people that sees uh, the God of the Old Testament as any different. There's certainly a different relationship between his people and us um, and him. Yeah, that's true. But I, I also see something of God, you know, in here. You, you can read Jeremiah, you can read any of the books and you see a sense of, no, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to fix you. You see the idea? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not so, I never feel so negative about that. But I can acknowledge that it can be hard on people. You know, like, uh, you know, if you, it's non-trivial to obey God. If God says that's the line, don't cross it. He means it. So if, uh, the, if the nature of, of God hasn't changed, could, it, could the nature no. of humans have changed so that they were only like ready for Jesus at the time that they were? Because that's something I've also heard people say. And I think that um, there was a sense in which they were called to be obedient. Uh, and then, of course, you have the whole discussion of whether the law could actually do any more than show them that they, had, they couldn't be obedient and that had to be the Spirit and it had to be a gift of the Spirit. And that's what you see in the New Testament. And, you know, that's playing, that's also playing at the same time. Uh, but to say that, that um, there were no righteous people in the Old Testament would be to misunderstand things. I mean, here's Elijah saying, oh, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one left. And God's saying, no, I've got 7,000 men who haven't, who, haven't, uh, who haven't bowed the knee, you know, to, to other gods. So it, it's, there, is a, there is a backstory we don't have of everything, you know, that there were people who obeyed the law and there were people who lived righteously before him, even in, in the context of a, of, of a demand to fulfil the law rather than, in our case, you know, to see that it's the spirit which, uh, you know, uh, it's God's spirit in us, if you like, that has taken over. And that needs to be real in, 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 in the Christian's life. I'd like to add to that just, you know, Frank, you, you know, because I think that this is a, a question of sociological evolution or social mm -hmm. evolution where people have moved from this tribal mindset to yeah. a more global mindset through Hellenism and whatnot. And that maybe Jesus introduced this kind of divine consciousness to mm -hmm. humanity and the beginnings of Western liberalism and whatnot. But I like what you were saying just about the code of ethics. I mean, if you look at, you know, ancient laws, they weren't merely tribalistic. They had actually um, a, a huge code of honor and maybe it's different from modern ethics and, and there has been a development of understanding, especially through technology and uh, the global community becoming much closer. But uh, I think that that's part of the argument is that people thought tribally and as Dawkins would think, is that people thought tribally, therefore their God was a tribal warrior. And it wasn't until a more global mindset that you had someone like a Jesus who could create a more universal mindset. But it, mm -hmm. to me, it, it's undercut by the code of ethics and like you said, righteous, uh, righteous people. And, and even the ancient Old Testament is not a, uh, it might be pro-Israel, but it's also 
the blessing, um, wanting to be a pro-Israel in order to be a blessing to the nations. Yeah, I agree. So that undercuts yeah. that kind of sociological yeah. evolution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to bring it back to physics. Yeah. Uh, could, you, could you talk about uh, the expansion of time and space and are they related? And uh, what does it mean that time expands? Uh, it's a very good question, in fact. Um, on the scale of millions of light years, you can see that space and time, because it's in fact they're, they're related to that there are changes uh, that are occurring uh, in the universe. So if I if you look at stars and you see them moving away or galaxies moving away from you, it isn't because they have what's called proper motion. That is simply because they're actually moving. It's because they're embedded in something which is changing. And that is the fabric of space time is changing. Now, what does that mean? Um, I'm out of my depth here in terms of actually, you know, what that could mean. Certainly, you could do a back-of-the-envelope calculation to say that the expansion of the universe is quite slow in the sense that the expansion of space, space doubles, if you like, in, in, in distance uh, in a period of something like 10 billion years. That would be a back-of-the-envelope calculation. Um, how it affects our notion of time Excuse me. How do, um, it affects our notion of time, I'm not sure. Uh, it's a very good question. Um, certainly space-time was created. I mean, the Big Bang, forget the name, uh, is the creation of space-time. That's what it is. It's our reality. It's, the, it's um, our space-time reality which is created. Um, uh, just how that uh, evolves. We certainly know there's a rapid expansion initially. That's what we think uh, from various physical models. Uh, and then there's a relatively slow expansion over billions of years of the actual size of the universe, which if we could keep going for another 10 or more billion years, uh, would lead to what's called the heat death of the university, that the, uni the universe, that it would basically uh, dissipate. That's the idea. We know now that the idea of it coming back in a big crunch, like, you know, it expanded and comes back, that's very unlikely. There's been some work done um, uh, to show, in fact, and it won a Nobel Prize, to show, in fact, that the universe is expanding and is continuing its, its, its expansion. What it means on the ground um, is only evident over large distances. So the distance between you in Canada and me in Australia is so minuscule, the changes, that it's not measurable. It's just not measurable. It's only measurable on the scale of, bi of millions of years. That's when you begin to actually see uh, um, that kind of a, a, an issue. Now, that's probably the extent to my, uh, my knowledge. I'm not a cosmologist, but um, it's certainly uh, 
you know, the, 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 the space-time expansion is well attested to. And not only is it expanding, you can actually think of it in terms of being curved. Uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity, which I do know something about, if, if uh, uh, around massive objects, uh, we can consider the flow lines of space, if you like, and time uh, to be altered by the, the, the mass of the body. That, that, that's what happens. And so uh, you can see this, this has been measured. Um, people like Arthur Eddington was actually able to measure this in 1918. And this really rocketed Einstein into fame because he had predicted how much uh, an, an object like the sun would affect a particular uh, position of a star uh, uh, that kind of thing led to people accepting this idea that space is not only expanding, which is a later phenomenon, but also the idea that space is not necessarily, as we think about it, not necessarily linear. It, it, it has curvature because of massive objects in the middle. Um, uh, yeah, but it's, it's very complex mathematically, believe me. You know, it's non-trivial. <laughs> Did I give you your answer, Fred? Yep, that's good. <laughs> and then Wendell? I, said, I can skip my question because I'm still forming thoughts. And it just, <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is I've been, I've, I've come from a lot of different places and I have an interesting background and mm. I don't think I can really touch on it right in this forum. So I, I might just go for a low ball, simpler question. <laughs> but um, so, one thing I find, I find interesting looking at sort of cultural trends and how, you know, I, I think sometimes we feel like we've progressed, but I think in many ways we've just relabeled things. Mm. And, I, and I think, you know, our sort of sacrificial tendencies in the back, we've, we've just kind of relabeled it mm. and sanitized it, but in mm. many ways we haven't changed. Mm. And one thing I find really interesting is, have you, I mean, you must have seen the recent cultural interest in this idea that we don't live in base reality, that we're in a simulation. Matrix kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, find it, I find it kind of fascinating because it, it feels like it's, it's, it's a way to kind of look at a universal truth again, but through this eye of technology that, so that you know, they can feel like they've still held on to technology, but can kind of reassess these, these, these callings again. And I find that fascinating. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Look, you can believe that you live in some sort of altered reality, but I, you can believe that, but I wonder if you actually live it. So for me, there's always this tension between what one believes and what one, what one actually does in terms of living. And so it's all very well to say, well, we live in some sort of matrix reality, but you know, when we make choices and do things and get into our cars and go to work and so forth, uh, it, 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 uh, we don't act as if we live in that kind of a, a reality. We act as if we are actors in a real reality. That's how we act. Uh, and so, you know, the people who say, well, we're just inside a matrix simulation, I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, that's an interesting idea, but do you actually live like that? I guess that's, that would be my critique of it. Well, I kind of thought it was sort of like a way, like, for if you've been brought up sort of in liberalism or in mm -hmm. sort of like a Sam Harris humanism type of sure. world, that it's yeah. a way to kind of jump back into that thought of a, a Christian thought again. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like a guilty pleasure that would let you 
go there without being intellectually dishonest. Mm. And that's, so that's why, so that's sort of my interpretation of what's going on. Mm. And again, it's that same idea that, you know, we haven't changed that much. We just keep mm. relabeling things, mm. Mm. you know, and we're, we're kind of in a, we're kind of looping around again. Mm. And I, and I, I don't, I have, I'd have to think, you know, about that. It'd be interesting to continue a discussion. You can email me if you wish. My, I'm just, uh, my email is fdarkstupin at gmail.com. But um, Sam was actually into uh, New Age religion before he turned right against it. He's Jewish in background. He, he had, a, if you look at his background, he was into, a, he, he went through a, a whole lot of religious experiences and in a sense became disaffected with those and now is a, a gentle and mild card-carrying agent. Uh, atheist, but you know that's how I see his personal life. That's how I see that uh, that that works. But I don't. I'm not sure I can answer without a long, well, more uh, you know, sort of detail how I would think about some of these things that you're suggesting. Yeah, no, I just I just kind of noticed, like, um, you know, especially with Dawkins and a lot of them, you sure. know there's a lot of logical fallacies involved and, mm -hmm. you know, not wanting yeah. to admit where our knowledge ends and begins yeah. and, you know, simple things like that's a low probability. I'm like, well, how did you assign probability? Is this yeah. frequentist? Yeah. You know, yeah. probability is either frequentist or it's, yeah. it's yeah. your belief. So you're telling yeah. me really it's your belief because we haven't observed this. So we don't have a frequency. Yeah. Very good. But, and that's always, you know, that's always put under the mat. No one really wants to talk about that. Sure. And so, you know, it really feels like, you know, you have these central values. This is like what C.S. Yeah. Lewis was getting at, the yeah. abolition of, yeah. of, of man. But you have these yeah. central values that you, you don't realize seep into when you fill in the gaps of where your knowledge ends. Mm -hmm. And you fill it in with your values and you don't really realize you're doing it. It's one of our cognitive yeah. bias. Yeah. And, yeah. It, you know, it, and so that's yeah. why I kind of feel like that's another. No, like no, a, no, no, that's a good point. I like and it. And I, I don't like know it. where to go with it, but it's, it's yeah, something yeah. I think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's true. Right? I do think that uh, um, we're much more presuppositionally driven than we actually imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have. I got to work on that terminology. <laughs> philosophical <laughs> yeah. philosophy of knowledge. I'm not up yeah, on the, the terminologies yeah. very well yet. So yeah, well, you know, we all all of us argue from points of infinity. That is, from points that we think are obvious. All of us argue that way. Um, Really, the critique is, are uh, what we believe, is that obvious or is it not obvious? Uh, you know, so uh, Dawkins has certain uh, points of infinity, that is, uh, things that are obvious to him and that he argues from. So does Sam, so do I, and mm -hmm. so do I as a Christian. And, and really, so often, when we start talking, we need to spend a little bit more time talking about our points of infinity and why we hold them. Well, and, and that right there says that you have a value system. Yeah. And yeah, so if, if there is no meaning, you yeah. shouldn't have a value system. No, no. And, you know, so that's one of the sort of logical fallacies made is that. Sure. Because you're sure. saying, well, I'm, I'm writing this book, so it has value because yeah. you should be reading it. Yeah, exactly. And you may not have any value, but I do because I'm writing it. I mean, it's the problem yeah. that I often see inside big papers about neurobiology, you know, the idea that in fact, uh, you know, uh, uh, what we actually believe is all full of uh, uh, vacuous emotion, you know, that comes out of an emergent reality that makes us up. 
But then I look at the paper and I think to myself, well, what about your position? If that is actually true about us, what about you? Uh, there's always this kind of circularity, you know, you need to have truths in order to argue there's no truths. That, you know, mm -hmm. this kind of uh, a problem is there, which I often see among some of my science colleagues, particularly when they enter uh, the human brain, they make assumptions that are not applicable to them, which I always think to myself, well, why doesn't it apply to you as well? Yeah, it's the same kind of circularity you know, in discussion. Yeah, but I do think we start from uh, presuppositions much more than we would like to admit. And perhaps sometimes we need to do a little discussing about our presuppositions, about why I believe what I believe. Um, yeah, it would be nice to be able to be that honest, you know, without having judgment, because then you can yeah. have some really good conversations. Oh, you can. I agree. I, I look, I could very happily sit with uh, Sam or with, uh, with Richard uh, over a cup of tea. Uh, you know, uh, in a cafe somewhere, drinking coffee. I'd love it. It'd be just so interesting. Because then we can talk at this level. We can talk about levels of presupposition and why we hold that. And when you start, when you take people seriously like that, you actually discover they're not as secure as they appear uh, on, on screen. Yeah, like if you, if you push Dawkins hard, he will have to admit that he is actually agnostic, but he's yeah. far on the spectrum of agnosticism because yeah. that's where knowledge ends. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't present himself that way, but if you no. push him, he will reply that way. Yeah. Well, he says himself, I was just going to say, Hawkins himself said as a scientist, he's strictly Darwinian, but as a, but when he thinks about society, he's thoroughly anti-Darwinian. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to say that uh, in his latest book, uh, which is a collection of essays a bit older, uh, that's exactly the point. You know, he says, I'm Darwinian, but I don't want my friends to be Darwinian. I, 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 I can't, I, I, I couldn't live, uh, you know, uh, if they, survival of the fittest wouldn't be amongst the people that I would want as my friends. Uh, and he, I don't think he sees, I don't actually see, I don't think he sees what he's actually saying. Mm. <laughs> so, can I ask one last, on evolution? Well, actually, yeah. I did my master's in evolution, so I've, yeah, I've sure. read a lot in it. Yeah. So one, one thing in Genesis I find interesting is this idea of, you know, knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And to me, that's exactly what a self-organizing system is. Mm. You're going to find out, you know, evolution is a self, universe is a self-organizing system. Evolution sure. is just one piece of a self-organizing system. Right. And, right. you know, and that would lead you to have knowledge of both good and evil, really. It's just mm. of what is, is, you know, in that mm. sense. And so I find, you know, I find that kind of consistent as well. It's kind of interesting. Mm. Well, it might be consistent amongst the, the uh, uh, us as human beings, but I'm not sure that the bacterium uh, in the Petri dish uh, has that knowledge of good and evil. No, no. And then in that way, I look at, you know, sort of consciousness and creativity in that as being oh. made in the image. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, being human is amazing. I keep saying that to people, and I, I would want to say that and shout it from the, uh, you know, being being human is amazing. And uh, one of the great tragedies in our culture and society is that we've diminished yeah. uh, what it is to be human. I know, it's become it's become bad to say that. It's interesting. Yeah, it's... yeah, yeah. We talk about human flourishing, but uh, and in philosophy as well, and I think to myself, yeah, but... But human flourishing means that you have a sense of your own 
uh, relationship to the world that you actually live in. And, and I feel a lot of people uh, have uh, diminished that and made us into virtually, uh, you know, well, we're just a product of this or a product of that. And basically we've diminished what it is to be human without being arrogant, you know, wishing to be arrogant, but nevertheless we've diminished that, which I think is a great mistake uh, and certainly countermands so much of what we talk about when we talk about human flourishing. Last one. Thank Thanks, Clark. Yeah, I, I when I when I pressed raise my hand, it was it was kind of like a. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, there's so many things that you guys have touched on that would be interesting to talk about. Um, but mm -hmm. I feel like one of the the most important things to me really comes down to the text, the biblical text, mm -hmm. and I think uh, one of the things that um, I really uh, have struggled with recently is. Um, you know, I used to, I used to not really have much regard for the inerrancy sort of idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, over the past five years, I've really kind of mm -hmm. like taken that position more seriously. Mm -hmm. And, and, and now I'm starting, I'm, I'm being forced by looking at the text where it says things about, uh, you know, the sun standing still. And, uh, you know, the heavens, you know, uh, moving or standing, you know, mm. quaking. And, and, and uh, yeah, I've read, I've looked at different books that look at the Old Testament text that seems to indicate that the worldview at the time was that the earth was flat and mm. that the, it was like this dome type mm. of mm. thing. Mm. Um, and the sky was like a solid, you know, dome. Yeah. Um, so uh so what's that what that is forcing me to to come to terms with is uh what what is inerrancy now for me uh because if if there are mistakes so to speak in the text about uh the cosmos creation then um uh, it it doesn't seem legitimate in my mind to look at those and say well you know the sun standing still well it appeared to stand still you know uh mm. and uh you know when it talks about the when it kind of mentions this kind of mm. dome type of theory mm. well that was just the worldview at the time and mm. that's not actually what the biblical text is claiming to be true mm. i'm like okay but that's that's reshaping my view of inerrancy that is a little it's more sophisticated more nuanced mm. um and um uh, and yeah i don't know i was just wondering yeah, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on that no i think I, I i think the process of a more nuanced understanding look there was a time and it, it has a historical reason uh, you know, within evangelical circles to start with inerrancy and infallibility is absolutely central. I mean, Francis himself started that. Francis Schaeffer started like that too. Um, and then to say, oh, yes, but we don't quite mean that or we don't quite mean this, we don't quite mean that. And that's the way it is, you know, where we acknowledge metaphor, we acknowledge numerology, we acknowledge a number of these kind of things. I think in a modern world, I've approached it differently. I think, and a number of others have as well, 
a, a sense of um, what is it that we actually mean. You know, if we start presuppositionally, the great danger, I think, with a starting presuppositionally uh, and not acknowledging the totality of the dimensions of scripture, if you like, I, I, I think that you end up with uh, you end up with a reduction a reductionistic view, which is which is not helpful in the long term. And for me, uh, the scripture, uh, its authority to author my reality, um, uh, is in its own context as a document which is mediated by humanity and the holy work of the Holy Spirit but it's set in the context of real space time, uh, of the cosmology, for argument's sake, of the people. And so for me, for me, I acknowledge that without it detracting from its ability to author my reality. Uh, I acknowledge that by not starting immediately with inerrancy and infallibility as a kind of a catch cry, a presuppositional catch cry. I approach it in a more nuanced fashion it's not that I don't believe in its value, intrinsic authorship, its intrinsic value to author my reality, but I have a much more relaxed, particularly when it comes to general revelation, for instance, you know, the cosmology, which is there, I don't know something about. I have a more relaxed view that doesn't detract from the centrality uh, of what it's getting at. So I see it as a tutor, as a, in a tutorial capacity, to me as well, perhaps that's one way of looking at it, uh, where I acknowledge that the mediation of people also involves their own time and their own and and their own uh, uh, yeah their own reality that they're in, and you, you get that whether you're looking at the Old Testament or New Testament. In fact, you you know I mean John will admit at the end of of, of his book that there are many other things that Jesus did. So. That's not what we have. There's not the sum total of the doings and sayings of Jesus, for argument's sake. We just, you know, um, yeah, there, there are, um, yeah, there are things that are that that uh, we have to allow for uh, because it's a living reality. It's not simply uh, a a book of facts only. It's a there's a living reality, and in terms of the sun standing still and all those kind. Of, I mean, there are lots of discussions that you could have about that. It's not impossible to stop uh, the Earth rotating. You'd have to do it slowly, but you can. You know, the Earth is rotating at approximately the speed of a 747 flying, a bit faster. Right? It, it rotates about 1,200 uh, kilometers an hour, and the 747 will fly at 940, 950. Um, the bottom line being that you can slow, you could slow the earth down over a period of hours and you could actually stop it in that sense and then start it again. So, I mean, you can make those kind of discussions as a physicist's point of view. I wouldn't do that, but all I'm saying is that uh, the actual technical aspect of stopping the earth and starting it again and having the sun much slower across the sky, that, that's not such a big issue to me. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how it works, I can look at Revelation, for instance, and see this—you know—the the, the sun turning, uh, the moon turning to blood, and the, you know the stars falling out of the sky. I I could see the end times as a cataclysmic astrophysical event. In fact, 
uh, we are certainly looking for what are called neos. It's interesting because Matrix has also talked about neo. And it's a near-Earth orbit. We are looking for um, uh, potential meteors that if it would hit the Earth would actually have some very devastating effects. Now, there is a, a meteor coming uh, which won't destroy Earth. It's called Apophis. In 2029, it will come closer to the Earth than many of our satellites. Uh, so this idea that the end times will turn out to be a cataclysmic uh, event in terms of, you know, all I'm saying is that one could draw those kind of statements without knowing whether that's correct or not. I, yeah, I think it's more new, I'm more nuanced. Uh, inerrancy and infallibility to me means there is no errant message in the scripture, that it will not lead us into error. Uh, infallible, unfallable, there is nothing in scripture which will fall, make me fall uh, in an unrighteous way before God. And so for me, inerrancy and infallibility, an errant is a message, you know, infallible. So I've taken it much more as there are no false messages and there are no errors uh, which it will take me into in my relationship with God. And around that is a nuanced understanding of uh, um, uh, things like general revelation. That, that's perhaps how I would uh, would put it in a modern in a modern way. Right. Well, and, and I think that's a, a big part of the discussion is what yeah. constitutes an error. Yeah, right? yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I the the I think the uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, I don't know if the Jesus seminar guy or yeah. I can't remember right. now. Uh, yeah. But he, he wrote this book where he you know he lists different errors that are in the text, and one was uh, <laughs> yeah. it just seems so silly I was. Know. Uh, that Jesus, uh, Jesus in his teaching about the the mustard seed being the smallest yeah. seed in the garden. Yeah. He's yeah. like, well, of course, the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed, no, no, so right. he's wrong, and that's yeah. an error. And so, yeah, yeah. and so, yeah. and it's like, that, well, but, Jesus, but, was Jesus making an all-encompassing statement about all the seeds and all right. of existence? No, that, that seems no. silly. You know, no, no, it's he's, silly. he's making, he's reading the Bible uh, with this very close-minded. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, almost evangelical type of of yeah. of, of view. Fundamental. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Um but yeah. at the same time there are there are places where um to say that there's no errors when when there are comments about the cosmos that seem very clearly to be uh uh ancient near eastern uh which are in, which are which are in error those are errors. Go ahead, Wendell. I was just going to say, if you went back a few hundred years, what we would term an error is different as well. Yeah. You know, because again, language is evolving. And right now yeah. we're viewing everything in a scientific technology. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't even realize you're doing it. Mm. And so, you know, what inerrancy means from a scientific standpoint, you know, as a scientist, that's very different from maybe for value-based because, you know, science doesn't give you any, any indication of what value is. It, it can't, you know, that, that's something completely outside of science. And so... The other thing that I would want to add, and I think this is, uh, maybe it adds to some of what, what, what uh, Julian is sort of getting at, 
you know, we, we in physics, in physics laboratories in first year, we teach people measurement and errors in measurement. But we don't mean errors as mistakes. We, we mean errors as tolerances in the yes. various measurements that we actually <laughs> make. And so the reality is this, that everything we do as human beings has certain tolerances in it. Textual understanding has tolerances in it. Um, you know, the tolerances are, are, are the real issues. Now, you know, the tolerances could extend to someone having a cosmological view, which is not our cosmological view, but, you know, that, that's what you can expect out of, uh, out of uh, uh, someone who's writing in a very different uh, uh, paradigm to our own. And I think this idea of tolerance is very important because, interestingly enough, if you read Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 13, he acknowledges, in fact, that our knowledge is partial, always. And, and so often 1 Corinthians 13 is only ever read at weddings uh, because it's, uh, everybody takes the love bits out of it, you know, love this, love that, and it's wonderful. But the reality is if you actually read it as part of the text rather than a wedding ceremony, you realise that he acknowledges that, in fact, our knowledge is partial. And that is actually true. As human beings, we've always got what I would might call tolerances. Uh, and in, in the script, reading scripture, it might be textual. It might be tolerances that have been created by the, by the very uh, framework out of which someone is writing. Um, you know, I, when I do my science, uh, when I've done my measurements, there are tolerances in that, and they're measurement tolerances. But you know, they're, they're, they're always, uh, we're not out of that loop. And I think that's helpful in trying to, trying to uh, uh, allow freedom sometimes. And of course, there's too much freedom allowed, of course, you can't believe it. But on the other hand, uh, there are enough freedoms uh, and tolerances which are there, which I think need to be allowed, even as Christians, as we read the text. I was say, if you have, in sorry, uncertainties and tolerances, yeah. Yeah. On average, you'll still get there as well. Yeah. You know, that's the statistical property, which is fascinating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, on average, even though you're wrong a little bit on one occasion, on average, you still get to the right, yeah. right yeah. message. That might be another way to think of it, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, uh, let's end there. Frank, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, preparing yeah. that and then also um, taking our questions at length. Sure.